This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put it into my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. Which you no good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, right reverend, Christopher Butler. How we doing, Chris? Oh, yeah, no, I am doing quite well. All right. Quite well. How about you? Okay, right on, right on. Well, as you very well know, there is the first Republican presidential primary debate. There'll be, I don't know, maybe eight folks up there, seven, eight folks up there. It will not include, though, President Trump, now, uh, former President Trump. Now, I personally feel like if you're running for president, you can't take the voters for granted. If there if there's going to be a debate, you need to be at that debate because the people need to hear what you have to say about a myriad of issues. And you need to be tested by the other candidates that are running. So I think he should be there from a purely strategical standpoint. I completely understand why he's not there. He really has nothing to gain from it. Uh, he's beating these other folks so bad you don't want to give them an opportunity to bring you down. But I think the right thing to do ethically would be to be there. What I want to get from you, I want to get your thoughts on that. But then I also want to get your prediction on who you think will do a really good job in the debate and who actually might have some trouble. Yeah. I definitely think that former President Trump should be a part of the debate, but I tend to lay that blame squarely at the feet of, of our partisan system. I, I think there's in this moment in our political history, we need to be thinking really deeply about the power that we cede to political parties, which are not, you know, any official or formal part of the government. They are not constitutional entities, and they have a lot of control over our political discourse and political realities uh, that we all have to live in. I think that a political party should require their candidate to have participated in debates, but our political parties don't do that because our political parties are more interested in maintaining power than facilitating deep and authentic democratic discourse. I don't disagree with that. When it comes to what happens tonight, I, I just think about Chris Christie's a professional. He does this and the only other person who I think even comes close to his sheer talent in this particular format is Donald Trump. And he won't be on the stage. I expect to see him have his way tonight on the debate stage. There are some lesser known entities like, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy shows some political promise. He does well in interviews and that kind of thing. But this kind of like this live back and forth interaction unscripted is is a different format and Chrissy's a professional so I think he's the one that I, I kind of look to to kind of have his way yeah I would agree it's hard to argue against Christie you know he's a, a former prosecutor we saw his performance before when he ended the uh, presidential run of uh, Marco Rubio 
for all intents and purposes. So he he knows how to attack. He's very clear when he makes his points and usually well prepared. So I think it's hard to say that he won't be one of the top. Now, he's not one of those guys that's going to, I think, get a huge bump from it. He's just not what he's very establishment, just not what I think the Republican base and others are looking for. That doesn't mean he can't cause some trouble for somebody like DeSantis, right? For some of the other folks on their pence and, and others, whoever he decides to attack, uh, which I'm, I'm guessing in his crosshairs will be DeSantis along with Trump, who won't be there. And I'm sure uh, he'll, he'll mention that again. So you got to say that. I mean, somebody I've been watching is Vivek Ramaswamy. When it comes to political talent, he's up there with Chris. Like, he's just a talented, he's not experienced politically, but he's very talented in how he answers questions, how he postures himself. He made some mistakes earlier this week, but in general, I think he's a lot more politically talented than your than somebody like DeSantis and, and some of the others. So I think, you know, I think I think a lot of the guns are going to be pointed at DeSantis. He's still while he's not doing great, he's still in the lead among the people who are going to be there. I want to see who's actually going to swing at Trump. Will it mostly only be Christie and maybe, you know, one other person or will other folks actually try to take some swipes? Are they really just running to be the vice president? We'll have to see. But y'all make sure y'all check that out. Yeah, I'll make a really detailed prediction. I'm going to go way out on a limb. Okay. But I think you will see exactly that. I think you'll see Christie go after Trump and somebody actually jump in and try to defend him. And then I think he might deliver a knockout blow like he did to Rubio, to somebody who tries to triangulate in that way. So I, I think we'll get that moment. In, in this I wouldn't game. be surprised if he's anticipating it or or at very least being ready, preparing to call them out for being what seems to be sycophants of the leader in that race. It's going to be interesting. So make sure y'all watch that. Some of y'all, by the time you hear this, will have watched it. And so we'll probably, I'm sure, next week have something to say about it. All right. As always, I want to give a shout out to all of our patrons and supporters for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. If you want to be a supporter of this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash church politics. This is how we get it done. If you really appreciate what we're trying to do, consider being somebody who helps us get this content out. It's not for free. It takes a lot of time and we need you to get to more people. So so do that for us. You will also, if you do that, you will also become one of our premium subscribers and you will get additional episodes. So after this, we'll be having conversations that only our patrons can have access to. So make sure you go and check that out. But it's time to get into it. So as always, grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. And as usual, let's start with some scripture. And it reads, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Matthew 25, 40. Chris, on this show, we spend a lot of time critiquing systems, uh, critiquing elected officials. We talk about the importance of holding leaders accountable and exposing injustice and immorality. And I hope that people would say, or I hope that the truth is that we do that with humility and transparency. But the Church Politics Podcast and the AND campaign aren't meant to just be about grievance. The Christian witness, I think, has to be more than venting frustrations and more than calling out systems and people. If we're to be fair, honest, and faithful, We have to also talk about what's right about our leaders, 
what's right about our country and what's right about the systems around us. Because the truth is, it's not all bad. I never want to give the impression that all our leaders are bad and everything about the country is corrupt. I personally just don't believe that to be true. So today, Chris, what I want to do is start with a sort of praise report. I want to start by also shouting out some some leaders, praising God and thanking leaders for what they did right, for doing the right thing. Because last week, I had an interesting interaction that really encouraged me about some of our elected officials. And so I want to tell you about that real quick. Last week was brought to my attention that a big apartment building in the Atlanta area was infested with rats. Those of you who've been following us for, for a while know that housing is a big issue for the AN campaign. It's something that we take very seriously. And I personally hate to hear about people living in substandard, unhealthy conditions. If you want to make me upset, that's one very quick way to make me upset and put me into action. So when I heard about this, Chris, I, I immediately put on my lawyer hat and I called the apartment building. Their response was lackluster. I called the folks who managed the building. They didn't respond. And to be honest, I thought I was going to have to mobilize the crew and picket the building for a few days. That's what I thought was, was about to happen. But before I did that, I ended up calling my man, Jaha Howard, Dr. Jaha Howard, I should say, who is on the school board in Cobb County. And I called him to see if he could put me in touch with anyone on the county board. And that's what he did. And he's, he's a busy guy, has his own dentist practice and all that stuff. But he immediately put me in touch with one of the commissioners over at Cobb County. He immediately put me in touch with Commissioner Monique Sheffield, whose staff was outstanding. I mean, when you talk about diligence, when you talk about responsiveness, they were all of that. They put me in touch with Lauren Wolf, who is in the Cobb County inspections. And the next day, the county was all over it. They got some tenants placed in another building and they addressed the matter appropriately with the company that was managing the apartments. And Chris, I just want to say right now, that's how government is supposed to work. I love to see elected officials who care, who work diligently and who take this personally. Commissioner Sheffield was telling me that she called and was going to meet with the company that was managing that apartment. She didn't have to do that, but they moved into action immediately and it helped people. It helped people who were trying to go through their house and they had rats eating their food, rats all over the floor, breaking through the walls. And they cared and said, no, this has to stop immediately. Not we'll call you back. Not we'll see what we can do. We're going to take care of it. And so for me, it can be really discouraging when we see some elected officials who don't act like that. But I am encouraged to see some good leaders who did the right thing for the people. Thank you so very much. And then thank you just to, to other folks in the AM campaign who took this very seriously as we approached it, who were ready to pick it if that's what we had to do. And it's just, you know, it, it was just great. So thank God, praise God for helping those people, giving us the connections and network to make that happen. And thank those leaders for doing the right thing because uh, they did an awesome, awesome job. Chris, do you have a similar praise report or at least a shout out for us? I actually do. And I, I didn't know that we were going to do this 
on this session until uh, uh, you know a little while ago. That is but true. That is true. I have a a, uh, a friend who's a, a state senator who's doing his thing, and I, I will say that I am not shouting out the things that he's doing because he's my friend. I think he's my friend because of the kinds of things that he's about. And he's he's his first term, just got elected uh, into the state Senate and already has pushed forward uh, legislation that seems like is going to finally get through the whole legislature and get signed by this governor, which is something that people in our state have been fighting for a long time. And that's actually to, to issue IDs to inmates that are in prison. So when it comes to reentry, one of the most difficult things mm-hmm. when somebody is coming back into the community uh, once they've been released from jail, uh, is to actually get them an ID because there are all these this documentation that they have to present at the Department of Motor Vehicles to get the ID, and they don't have those things because they've been in jail for a period of time. So in the jail, they know who who the person is. So and that's a state facility, so you can actually issue the ID in there. And I think we're going to get that done, and that's a huge thing. Coming into this back to school moment, which we're going to talk about a little bit uh, for our Patreon listeners, more back to school stuff. But Willie Preston is one of the only Democrats that I've seen who has been willing to be out there vocally and publicly holding our school district, particularly in Chicago, to account just for not having our kids academically at the place where they need to be. And it's a tough conversation to have, but we got to have it. And literally, Justin, a couple of weeks ago, about a week ago, uh, Senator Preston pulled over on the side of the road, a, a truck, a, uh, a truck had jackknife and the driver was stuck inside the truck. And Senator Preston pulled over, got his crowbar out of his trunk oh, wow. and rescued the truck driver from the truck. So mm-hmm. Senator Preston is out there being a superhero. So shout out to him. Shout out to Senator Preston. All hope is not lost, right? And 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 again, we don't ever want to come off as a type of podcast that that's saying that because that's not what we believe. That's not how we view the world. But but this really shows you that you know we can talk about party, we can talk about ideology and all that stuff. But it's really about the work. Who's going to put in the work? Who's going to provide services? Who cares about the people more than they care about just staying in office? And when I saw a constituent service team that responded in the way that they responded to me that went and was reaching out to the folks that were responsible for this and make and holding them accountable, making sure the people got taken care of. There were no cameras. Nobody had any idea that this would 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 be something this public. But I appreciate the work that they put in because it's those type of things. It's, it's kids around rats, roaches, all the stuff that that comes from that we got to care about. We can fight and we can have our political battles, our ideological battles, but we all should care about that. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. 
the end campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Well, Chris, so-called Cop City in Atlanta is back in the news again. And Chris, we've spoken about this a couple times, but the city of Atlanta is now trying to, for those that don't know, the city of Atlanta is trying to build a training facility for police officers, somewhere where they can train more police officers with better, you know, in a better way, right? With new technology and all that other stuff. Now, this has come under criticism for where it's being built and from some kind of defund the police types that don't want a training facility for the police at all. They don't want really want police and they don't want to, you know, to spend the money on the training facility. Now, while the city, I'll say this, the city has not been completely transparent about the cost. Okay, I think that much is true. While that is true, I think better trained police is a good thing. And it's what most people in my community and I think most people in the city in general want to see. Now, the activists have been very well organized. They've been at City Hall. They brought a lot of people to City Hall. They broke records when it comes to public comment. They have had big numbers. In the conversations that I have around different parts of the city, I still think they represent a minority of the city. And some people are representing that just because they had so many people at City Hall, they represent the entire city. That's not that's not exactly what that means. And in my conversation, I haven't seen that to be the case. Now, what they're trying to do now, building this facility and paying for it has already been passed through the city council and signed by the mayor. But they're trying to force a referendum. They're trying to force it to be passed by a ballot at the ballot box instead of just by city council and the mayor. And so what they need to do to make that happen is they need to get around 60,000 signatures or about 15% of registered voters to get their signatures to make that happen. Have gotten a whole bunch of signatures, and now they're saying that the city of Atlanta, which is run by Democrats, are engaging in voter suppression. The Intercept had an article on this, and I'm going to read from some of that. It says, After organizers in Atlanta collected over 100,000 signatures for a referendum on the construction of a $90 million police training facility, city officials announced an elaborate signature verification process for the effort. Atlanta's interim municipal clerk, Vanessa Walden, outlined the city's process for verifying the signatures needed to bring the training facility to a vote in a statement on Monday. In an effort to ensure the adequate resources are dedicated to this project, the city of Atlanta, through the adoption of of the city council, has developed a step-by-step process to conduct the audit of the documents, of which the signature verification process may be a critical element. That's what Walden said. 
The article goes on to say the announcement came hours after activists with the vote to stop cop city coalition put a hold on their plans to submit a hundred and four thousand signatures they had so far collected in support of a popular vote on the facility dubbed again cop city by critics now here's the problem so you have the city of atlanta who's passed this resolution to build this facility you have the activists trying to force a, a referendum and then they come back and say the city council comes back and say okay that's cool but we're going to audit the the signatures here's the problem with that chris in 2019 the democratic party of georgia and i just want to say all the everyone on the city council except maybe one person is our democrats one or two people are democrats okay but in 2019 the democratic party of georgia joined by national democrats argued against signature verification requirements in a lawsuit against the Georgia Secretary of State. The article says that signature matching laws are particularly problematic for racial and ethnic minority voters, young first-time voters, voters with disabilities, and senior citizen voters. This is what the Democrats said. Okay, so let me say that again. The Democrats said that signature matching laws are particularly problematic for racial and ethnic minority voters, young first-time voters, voters with disabilities, and senior citizens, all of whom are more likely to have variations in their signature or voters who may require assistance from others to enter a signature. Okay. In one instance, you have Democrats arguing against voter kind of verification. In another instance, you have them supporting it. Interesting. Now, here's the questions that I want to answer real quick, and I'm going to pass it to you. Chris, does the city want this to go to referendum? Absolutely not. Right. The city is not trying to help this go to a referendum. The city, meaning the city council and the mayor. For one, the city does desperately need the facility. And they've been working on this for years. Not to mention referendums, although they're sometimes necessary. I'm not against referendums. I've run campaigns for referendums. But they are also very expensive campaigns and they are very time consuming. If the mayor wants to get this done, he doesn't want to have to wait to go through that process to do it when he's already you kind of legally went through that process. But there are rules for when you have to go to a referendum. So you can't get around those. The next question is, Chris, are Democrats in support of signature verification? Are they being hypocritical? In my opinion, yes, that that's somewhat hypocritical. If it was wrong for the Republicans to do it or the secretary of state to do it at that time, then it's wrong now. So there, there is a conflict in those two positions. Lastly, do I think personally that verification is bad? Not necessarily. Um, if it's being conducted unfairly, then that needs to be pointed out. But I don't think the city is wrong for making sure these signatures are legit. Like if you just hand me a bunch of signatures, I'm just supposed to say, yeah, you 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 reached your number and I don't know if these signatures are legitimate or not. I don't think the city has to do that. And so I don't think this is necessarily voter suppression unless they're not conducting the verification in, in a fair way because they did. You know, these are elected officials. They did vote. You know, they were voted in and they have the right to vote for a facility and they're not going to go to a referendum every time somebody disagrees with that. And I don't think it's a majority of the people that disagree. But go ahead, Chris. What were your thoughts about this back and forth? 
Yeah, for sure. There's a whole conversation that I think is is way more local to Atlanta about the need for the facility. And certainly there's already been a process that's taken place in Atlanta going through the city council. These are the elected officials. They're charged with, with that duty. It Being a Chicagoan, it is particularly kind of uh, jarring to me to hear Democrats, especially in an Atlanta article, there's a person quoted from one of these kind of like uh, voter rights uh, operations who calls this a Republican style maneuver. And in Chicago, this this signature verification thing is a time honored tradition in Democratic politics. If listeners don't know this in the state of Illinois, a large organization of individuals, the League of Women Voters, lots of different folks got together back in 2012 when all of the state and gathered petitions to put a redistricting reform referendum on the ballot. And the Democratic Party operation, I guess not the party officially, but Democratic Party operation challenged signatures there to make sure that that referendum didn't make it to the ballot because Democrats in the state of Illinois control uh, redistricting and probably will for you know, the foreseeable future. In 1996, it was a signature challenge that that time unelected individual named Barack Obama used to get a sitting state senator, who also happened to be his boss, kicked off of the ballot by challenging her signatures in 1996. Over and over again, in Democratic primaries, you see the party challenge the signatures of, of electoral challengers, because even if you make it through the challenge, I experienced this in my own congressional campaign. Even if you make it through the challenge, you expend a lot of time and money and uh, kind of like people power defending the challenge because you've got to get lawyers. You got to have people to go down and go line by line through the signatures. And so if the Democratic Party is against this, I hope that they remember that and have a conversation with Democrats in Illinois when they come here for the convention next year. They should definitely talk about how undemocratic that process is. I think that there is a way to do it because, as as you said, you don't want to just have somebody can just go out and get a bunch of signatures on a page. Because people will put fake signatures. On, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's not beyond people to, to fraudulently put signatures that aren't in the city or aren't real signatures. Yeah. And so I I will say from the perspective of somebody who I have probably participated in some kind of signature challenge or defending some kind of signature challenge in every election cycle since I was like 12. And so there are certain elements to this that I think are very problematic. So this kind of identical signature matching is very difficult because when you're gathering, when you register to vote, you're probably at a library or at church or something like that. When you sign these petitions, people are coming up to you on the train platform, walking down the street, it's cold outside. And so your signature may not look exactly the way that it does on your voter registration card. If you registered to vote when you were 18 and now you're 36, that signature you know, may have changed a little bit. If, if you registered to vote when you're 40 and now you're 86. So you know, that type of thing, there needs to be a way to bring that in. The the proposal that I've supported here in Illinois is to have a signature verification process that looks specifically for patterns of of fraud, right? So there are, uh, there's a process called tabling that sometimes people do where you literally get like 20 people in a room and you give them the, the voter file and you pass the sheets around 
and people just, you know, sign signatures of voters. But you can pretty easily spot that because there's only this limited number of handwriting styles on the page. You know, and so you want to look for things like that. If all the signatures on this page have the same handwriting, you can throw this out. If you find a particular circulator had this sort of fraudulent activity, then you can eliminate all of the pages that that circulator submitted. So there are ways to have some boundaries around signature gathering where you don't allow people to actually go in line by line and say, if this signature is not identical to what is on the voter registration card, then the signature is not valid uh, because you That's good. you don't let people do anything, but you also don't want to, you know, to, to negate the ability of people to actually put a question on the ballot when the state law actually allows them to do so. No, that's fair. That's great information. And see, this is the good part of actually having insiders who talk about this stuff. You're not going to get this on a lot of other podcasts or folks who've been through that process. But again, voter verification in general is fair game. Nobody's going to just let you turn in a bunch of signatures and not verify that they're right. But what I want you all to keep in mind from this conversation is how partisans make arguments based on the circumstance, not necessarily based on the principle. So before you get all up in arms and every on based on every argument that your party is making, you may want to think about the fact that they may, might only be making that argument because it fits them at that moment. And a lot of times, I don't know if I can say most, but a lot of times that's how partisans make arguments. Stop automatically believing everything partisans say, getting all enraged and upset every time they make an argument, or every time they say something about the other side, because in many cases they're trying to get you upset. And they're making an argument that's not really based on a principle that they're going to uphold if they're on the other side of it. And we really need to take that into consideration. And I just don't think that we do. I think we will take, you know, we'll take our side's argument at face value and think that it's the biggest issue ever when the the shoe's on the other foot, they're standing on the other side of of the conversation. So one thing I want to point out, too, is that the Intercept article also said this. In January, Atlanta police, this is what the article said, shot and killed a forest defender. That's what they're calling him in the article. Manuel Esteban pays terrain. The police claim that the officers only shot after being shot at first, only for an independent autopsy to find that his hands were raised during the shooting and the police shot him at least 57 times. Now, in response to what The Intercept said in the article, writer Zed Jelani tweeted this. The Intercept published this without noting that the ballistic report shows that the gun registered to terrain was traced to the bullet in the officer. The state's investigation found bullet residue on terrain's hands. This seems like mainstream, a mainstream form of trutherism. He also noted that the quote unquote independent autopsy in this case was paid for by the family of Tehran, by the way, which is not an independent autopsy. Right. So this article was leaning very closely towards the activists. And I think it's good that he kind of pointed pointed out that some of this may not be intellectually honest. When you're talking about what has happened with, quote unquote, Cop City, an officer was shot. When the officer was shot, because I've heard too many commentators act like this young man got shot for no reason, for no apparent reason, and that there's some huge cover up. That's intellectually dishonest. A cop was shot. Once the cop was shot, they shot back 
the autopsy that 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 was done by the government showed that he had that the residue on his hands. You cannot leave that out of an article. You cannot call it an independent autopsy when the autopsy was paid for by somebody, you know, that that might be filing a lawsuit. Now, I also heard, you know, one of the guests on the Hill say that Mayor Dickens is building the facility only to support corporate interests. I know Mayor Dickens. He truly cares about training police. Right. And I think this whole defund the police effort is using this issue to further their cause. But again, I think it's only a small group of people. So if you read that article, I want you to keep in mind that an officer was actually shot before they killed this young man, which is unfortunate. You hate to see that. And the hands up stuff, all that came from somebody came from not an independent autopsy, but an autopsy paid for by his parents. It doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't a truthful autopsy, but it's certainly not independent. All right. Anything else, Chris? Yeah, I I would just say quickly on the point about corporate interest, which is something that you hear talk about, at least I hear locally, that investing in policing is like investing in corporate interest. Maybe that's true a little bit, but there is a possibility that there is in this one narrow case uh, shared interest between the the business community and the local neighborhood communities that we have in cities like Chicago, Atlanta, cities all over the country. And that shared interest is public safety, right? So for sure, tourism is better. Commercial districts are more populated and all that kind of stuff when the city is considered to be safer. But just because that happens to benefit you know folks who are in business, that doesn't mean that people who live in neighborhoods and who live, work, and play in the city don't also have an interest. Yeah, I mean, that can be a very misleading talking point because anytime some people hear corporate, it means it's already bad, but it's as if the community can't share any interest with corporations and it as if the corporations had to be the motive of the politicians who passed that. There is not, not enough, and I've been watching this for a while, there is not enough information, there is not enough evidence that that's the case for people to be saying that in that way. And so I, I think that's, again, intellectually dishonest. And there are a lot of people in the city of Atlanta, black people who live in these communities who are dealing with the crime that want more better train and more police out there. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend Christopher Butler. Chris, Larry Elder, you may have heard him before. He's a candidate in the Republican presidential primary. He won't be in the debate, but he's a really interesting guy. He's a black conservative, which is fine. And he's really provocative. 
right? To be honest, Chris, and this is my opinion, not Chris's, Chris will give his. To be honest, it's hard for me to take him seriously because he's one of those guys who's smart, but he seems more interested in being an entertainer than really a leader, right? Like he, he seems like he's mostly concerned with getting a reaction and keeping his name out there. He's, he's one of those folks, and this is just my opinion, they run for office not because they really want to govern or think that they're going to necessarily win, but for exposure. And I, and I know that I know that's some speculation. I'm just talking about when I see how he goes about certain things. That's what it seems like to me. I don't know that for sure, but it seems like that entertain. We all know those entertainers. I mean, we know an entertainer who actually won, <laughs> who might not have even expected to, to initially win. And so sometimes it works. But there are people who run for office to mainly keep their name out there, get deals, stuff like that. He seems like he could be in that category. All right. He ran for governor in California. You know, during that the the recall and all that, and I, I just it just you know it just wasn't a impressive run, and I think his prospects for being president are are pretty much non-existent. But I'll say this: he did get what was a surprising win on the campaign trail last week. He was a guest on Breakfast Club, which is a a very popular radio show fe- featuring Charlemagne the God. This particular episode had Teslin Figaro on it as a co-host. And I want y'all to listen to Elder talk to Charlemagne about what it means to be black and how black people should think, right? Being reminded about being black and how black people should think. Uh, we're going to roll this clip real quick. <coughs> Have you ever heard of the term a nigga wake up call? No. It is an incident where a person of color forgets that they are of color and are reminded rather brutally by an unexpected act of racism. Oh, Have you ever brother. had any of those? Oh, brother. I'm just asking. I'm just you think you've ever Well, I'm, I'm acutely aware, Charlemagne, that I'm a black person, just as you are a black person. And when uh, Joe Biden insulted you by saying mm-hmm. you ain't really black, we don't know whether or not you want to vote for me or vote for Donald Trump. Uh, it seems to me that should have been a wake up call on your part. How dare this guy come in here and insult you, a black man, and tell you you got to think a certain kind of way. I'm amazed that you weren't mad about that. Um, I didn't, I'm not gonna say that it upset me. Just like I'm not letting you upset me. You know what I mean? I don't tend to get upset over things like well, that. But what I did say, well, well you just not talk about, about a nigger wake up call. And it seemed to me that that should have been a wake up call on your part to have a white guy come in here who also said, by the way, uh, uh, about Mitt Romney, um, uh, uh, because he didn't want to put more regulations on Wall Street, going to put y'all back in chains. And Joe Biden has lied for decades about his civil rights record, claiming that he desegregated movie theaters and restaurants in, in Wilmington, Delaware, when he didn't any, didn't do any of that. He lied and said that he tried to visit Nelson Mandela during apartheid South Africa. He did not. And he came in here and told you you aren't even black and let you think a certain kind of way. It seemed to me that should have been a nigga wake-up call for you, but it wasn't, apparently. Yeah, I mean, you no, know, for the record, I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I, I, I didn't say you were. Yeah, I think both. I don't know what you are. I, I never yeah. even asked you about your party affiliation. Yeah, I think I'm just saying, you, but you are black. And, and to have a white guy come in here and tell you you have to say, uh, think a certain kind of way, otherwise you, quote, ain't black. Wow. How should I have replied to him, you think? What I just now said, how dare you insult me and tell me I, I think as, as a human being, let alone as a black person. I don't tell you how to think, Joe Biden. How dare you come in here and tell me how to, how I, I should think. I'm going to vote for Donald Trump if I want to vote for Donald Trump. And, and if I want to vote for Donald Trump, it does not make me not black. Man. Okay. First of all, I want to thank my friend NBC for sending me that clip. But let me say this, Chris. Larry Elder, I think, had some bad points in that, as in other parts of the interview about systemic racism. At one point, he said that it ended with Brown versus Board of Education. He had some bad points on uh, reparations and, and so on. But otherwise, 
he flamed Breakfast Club. In my opinion, Chris, they didn't seem prepared to speak beyond their talking points. And he really took advantage of it. I mean, he he really went in on them uh, on them in a way that I don't think that they expected and that they, 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 that they weren't prepared for. Obviously, you know, him bringing up Trump and Charlemagne, him bringing up Biden and Char- Charlemagne's interview with Biden was kind of deep because we did hear some things from Biden that I think Biden shouldn't have said. Now, on this podcast, we talk about racism on the right quite a bit. We talk about, and I've said it many times, I think one of the main problems with the Republican Party and why a lot of black people aren't in the Republican Party is because they cater to racists, that there's some people in that party who are racist and they do, and they, to some extent, cater to them and send dog whistles and all that. We talk about that all the time. But I also want to say that what elder address that came from Biden needed to be addressed in a better way during those election cycles. So we heard when when Biden was, you know, Biden is, is, is talking to Charlemagne. He says, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. He should have been taken to task for that one. He's in no position to tell somebody exactly, you know, how to think or who they are based on whether they vote for him or not. That was ridiculous. And then back when he was again, what was he what he brought up back when he was running as vice president against Mitt Romney to say, if if you elect Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney, they'll have you back in chains. That should have never been that should he should have never got away with that. OK. And there were some people that, that called him out, but not enough Democrats said, hey, man, you can't you, you can't do that. Now, if it came from somebody else, they would have got called out for it. Biden gets away with it. But I just thought this clip, there was an interesting back and forth. I was surprised Elder did that well, but he was certainly prepared for the moment. Even if I don't agree with his arguments, I think he got the better of uh, that group. What, what are your thoughts, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think so, too. I mean, I, I, I appreciate your initial thoughts about Elder. It opens a, a, a space in my own thinking for a more charitable assessment of the brother. It was surprising. I guess I can't say surprising, but unfortunately, I don't think I listened to Breakfast Club, honestly, enough to say that it was surprising. Uh, but it was unfortunate that in other parts of the interview, it didn't seem like they were prepared to really take Elder to task on some of the right. propositions that he made. Because they could have got him. Yeah. Yes. I mean, these are things that he talked about all the time. Because I mean, even when he talked about, like, you know, systemic racism doesn't exist, his proposition was that it ended at Brown versus Board of Education and at the Civil Rights Act and when Obama was elected. These are all like, you know, very different points in history. When did it actually end? And if we can't pin down that, is it actually open now? And they just didn't seem prepared to to take him to task on those things. They were locked in, like you said, to these kind of like talking points, not a whole lot of factual information to back up some of the stuff that they were saying, which was probably more valid in terms of proposition than what Elder was saying, but they didn't have any of the argument to to back up that proposition. Honestly, maybe that's why Joe Biden got to come on the show and say what he said, because to me, that should have happened right in the show. If, if you're going to say, if somebody doesn't vote for you, they ain't black. It's a heck of a proposition. Explain yourself. What does that mean? What part of right. not voting for you diminishes a person's blackness? What does it mean to be black? Does it mean that you vote for Democrats? Is that actually take a person to task on the things that they talk about. And, and it was unfortunate that that didn't happen on, on the show. Uh, what you had to appreciate about a person like Elder coming on a show like that and taking Charlemagne to task on something that he said about, you know, the wake up call. It's like, well, what happened to your wake up call? Because the reality is people on 
both sides of the political spectrum do this all the time. You certainly have a person carrying the standard for the Democratic Party that has a lot of questionable stuff in his background when it comes to racism and race relations in America. You have a person who was in the Senate for a long, long time, had a lot of affiliations, took a lot of votes, led a lot of policy uh, that was not great for Black people. And then, like you mentioned, said these particular things on uh, on the campaign trail. And in my opinion, mainstream media never took him to task. And I, if a Republican said any of those things, it would have been the first question in the, the presidential debate. Right. You said this. What exactly did you mean? And so it's, for me, it's just one of those things that makes me really, really appreciative of the work that we do and that I get to engage in at the end campaign. Because there's this whole world called reality that exists somewhere between the most strident sort of like democratic left wing, you know, politicians and talking points. Like I said, I don't listen to enough Breakfast Club to know if they fall squarely into that camp or somewhere else. But somewhere between that and Larry Elder, there's reality. And that's where most people, especially I have to say, black people are, are living in that space. And there may be room, I think there is, for some political realignment, some political movement in black communities that do vote overwhelmingly democratic. But it's never going to happen either with people not being able to make arguments, which is kind of what I saw in the Breakfast Club instance, or with Larry Elder, you know, making some good and honest points, but then marrying it together with all this other. Yeah, you make a good point. I mean, he didn't win because he didn't expose himself with some bad arguments. There just wasn't. I think folks knew what they wanted to say. They wanted to get at those particular points and weren't really focused on the other stuff that he was saying. Because even Figaro at one point was like, you know, Basically, black people don't have don't control the system, don't control any systems. And he was like, well, look at Baltimore. They control the mayor, the whole city council, the prosecutor. He named like six different areas. And she's like, no, they're still not. They still don't control the system. Baby girl, you can't say that, that people are in those positions of power. And I don't mean they control everything. Maybe they don't have the money, probably don't have the money in Baltimore. Right. But but, dude, if you control every part of government, you have a major influence on what's happening in the system. And that's just like here in Atlanta. This is why a black woman could bring a suit, uh, you know, uh, criminal charges against Trump because she controls part of the system and what's going on. Whether you agree with it or not, to say we have no control over anything, that's narrative. That's ideology forcing you to ignore the reality. We have to get away from that. You and I both agree that there's systemic racism, that that is real. That's not going to cause me to be so dishonest to say, oh, we don't control anything, because if something goes wrong, it's got to be somebody else's fault. Therefore, we don't control anything. That's not that's not where we're at. It's not intellectually honest. And we we got to back away from that stuff. But on that point, he actually, I think, I think did a pretty good job. Yeah. I mean, I, I think anybody who's listening with an open mind, like obviously they're going to be like a bunch of people who are like fans of Charlemagne and the other folks who are on that show who are just going to like amen whatever they say. If this were a debate getting judged, I listened to the whole hour-long thing. Elder easily wins, again, not because he's making these brilliant, true, and irrefutable arguments. They just didn't make a good argument against it. I mean, I, I continue to argue to people all the time. Like in a city like Chicago, you have all these Black folks who are in control of the system, but all of them had to pass through these 
non-native rites of passage go to these universities and pass through these party structures so that by the time they get in these positions, their policy uh, framework and their, yeah, their, their, their frame of mind is not the native frame of mind from the community. But that's a much better argument than to just continually say, well, they didn't control the system. I think at one point, you know, it's like, well, they didn't invent the system, so they didn't control the system. Yeah. Okay. That was, yeah, that was, you got to switch. See, what Elder did, in my opinion, was he knew the boilerplate progressive talking points. And so he anticipated what those boilerplate talking points were and had a counter for all of those. And, and that's where he got them at. And they just used those exact talking points, right? They didn't. They didn't do their homework. They just used those basic talking points, and he hit. He hit them with that. And that's. And that's what should happen when we're just using talking points, yeah. right? When we're just repeating what we're supposed to say based on our ideology. So, uh, very interesting interview. Again, let's be willing to call folks out. The ANCAM, like we said before, we we're no respecter of a party or ideology or a. a we're going to critique everybody. Nobody's above and below a fair and constructive c- critique. And we'll talk about Trump. You know, we talked about Trump when he was bringing the birtherism, when Obama was in the office and all that stuff. We're going to talk about Biden. I don't want to hear any of that stuff that, but you know what I mean? Like don't approach the black community that way. Cause they don't have to vote for you. You got to earn the vote. So just earn the vote. Our job isn't to get any elected official elected. We're here to keep folks honest and, and to keep you in the know about what's really going on. So thank you for joining us again. I think this was a great conversation, Chris. Always an honor to be on the Church Politics Podcast with you and Camp. You know what it is. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kemp, we'll holla at you. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.